We are in John chapter 19 this morning. It is Palm Sunday, and uh, this passage will not be in uh, Palm Sunday in particular. The children will help us to, uh, to reflect on Palm Sunday after uh, our sermon together. You'll, uh, you'll enjoy that later. Uh, but this morning we are in John chapter 19. Back in 1940, Viktor Frankl was a head of a neurology department at a major hospital in Austria, and then the Holocaust happened. Uh, the Nazis killed Frankl's wife, his brother, his parents, and Frankl himself survived Auschwitz. After he was liberated, he chronicled his experiences in concentration camps, and it became a book called Man's Search for Meaning. A book you may have heard of it, sold more than 10 million copies by the time of Frankel's death in 1997. And in that book, Frankel argues that the greatest task for any human being is the search for meaning to include finding meaning or purpose in suffering. He wrote this, if there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. He went on and said, suffering ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. In other words, again, seeing the, the meaning in suffering. We've all walked through experiences of suffering, and we've all asked a myriad of questions during those times, mostly why questions. Why is this happening? What, what am I to learn from out of this? How does this end? What is God doing in the course of this tragedy? And the truth is we rarely get all of the specific answers to the why questions, but we do know this. As believers in Jesus Christ, our suffering is never meaningless. It is never without purpose. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there is meaning in our suffering. We know that in part because Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose. And, and in that very same context, Paul goes on and he lists various trials that we would experience in this life. And so he makes it very clear that God is at work in those, that he is a purpose in those. So suffering is never meaningless. More so, though, we, we get that by looking at Christ and seeing the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, for as unjust and violent as it was, we see the most meaningful suffering ever. We see the purpose in his suffering as we see John's account of it here. Our Savior suffered cruelty and agony and shame, but his suffering was according to the plan of God to fulfill the will of his father. He suffered, and that's what he was sent for, was to give himself, to fulfill the plan of God to redeem a people for himself. The suffering of Jesus Christ that we're looking at this morning in, in John 19 is not only worthy of evoking worship as our response, worshiping Jesus Christ, but it also gives us hope that there is meaning and purpose in our own suffering. John chapter 19, I want to thank Jeremy for leading us so well through the early part of this chapter and the end of chapter 18 last week in the account of Jesus' trial before Pilate and the focus on this authority and kingship issue and Pilate sort of questioning him on this ground and Jesus making it very clear that he declared himself to be a king of kings. Three times during that trial, 
Pilate says, same thing, I find no guilt in this man. After interrogating, after, in a cowardly way, having Jesus tortured to try to appease the crowd in some way, after all that he has experienced in this interaction with Jesus, he keeps coming back to, I find no guilt in this man. I can find nothing that he has done wrong. And he is making that declaration in some degree as a political hope that this group around him will disperse. We'll call it a day and leave him alone. And yet, in the end, he sentences him to the most heinous form of execution that the Romans had of crucifixion. In Pilate's mind, there's no other human reason in doing that other than just to try to address this crowd in some way. It is Passover week. The city of Jerusalem is packed with people. He has before him an angry mob at this point, and ultimately he finds this to be the only solution that will sort of disperse this crowd in some way, or at least deal with them in some way that won't turn it into a complete riot. And so he sentences this innocent man and turns him over to the Roman soldiers to be publicly executed. I want to read beginning in verse 16. I'm going to go right through the end of the chapter. We'll read this whole section as we see the, the time of Jesus' suffering on the cross. So it says in verse 16, Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. This would be the Roman soldiers. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We're in the midst of a six-week series, walking through these last chapters of the Gospel of John as we've looked at the whole book, but we've really been focusing in on where John has been leading us all of this time, and that is on the glorious Savior. Where John, since the beginning of his Gospel, has been appealing to us to see Jesus Christ for who he is as the light of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah and Savior. And so John has been leading us to see this glorious Savior, see him in his glory. And so now we come here to his crucifixion. At the arrest of Jesus, we we focused in on, on the courage of Jesus, the stepping forward into those who were arresting him, his betrayal and his arrest, and Jesus speaking truth even in the midst of that trial and, and speaking boldly before those who were accusing him. Uh, we looked last week at the kingship and authority of Jesus Christ as he's questioned by Pilate and the fact that he is very clear that he has a kingdom. It is not of this world. He is indeed a king over kings. This morning, I want us to look at the suffering of our Savior, not only for what it does and accomplishes for us, which is pivotal to this, but also what it gives us hope in, in terms of our own suffering. So five points, you've got them on the notes inside your bulletin. The first one is Jesus suffered as an innocent man. We've seen this previously in the trial, starting with the Jewish trial, when when there were attempts to sort of bring in witnesses, and they were false witnesses, and they had conflicting testimony, and ultimately there was no wrongdoing found on Jesus' part. The conclusion of the Jewish phase of the trial was the high priest saying, he's guilty of blasphemy, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be a son of God. All things that Jesus did indeed say for himself, none of that was criminal, but it was what the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus crucified for. They saw him as a threat to their lifestyles and to their authority, and so they determined to do away with him. And so they send him to the Roman governor because it's the Romans who must carry out the death penalty. They are the governing officials of the day. And again, the Roman governor repeatedly affirms Jesus' innocence, even though he ultimately caves in in a cowardly way to the crowd and has Jesus crucified to appease them. It's very clear that Pilate finds no wrongdoing. And ironically, he finds one last way to proclaim Jesus' innocence in a mocking sort of way to those who stood by and to those Jewish leaders. As the soldiers are crucifying Jesus, there is the wording of this placard that is on the cross. We know it was Roman custom that a condemned man who was to be crucified had two things. He carried his crossbar and he wore around his neck that placard that described what it was he was being crucified. For being perhaps a traitor, inciting violence of some kind, being a murderer, some sort of cruel crime, and they would wear that inscription around their neck. Um, the Jewish leaders wanted to see Jesus not only crucified, but humiliated in the process. They wanted to see it clearly said that in some way this man is deserving of death. 
certainly the, the grounds on which they brought Jesus to the Roman governor was, look, he's inciting rebellion. If he wants to be a king, then he's a threat to Caesar and to Rome, and you've got to take care of him on that basis. And so that's the, that's the hope on their part. And instead, what Pilate does is he mocks Judaism, including these very same Jewish leaders whose bidding he had just done by writing, this is Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth king of the Jews. And he does it in the three most widespread languages of that day. So as all of these Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world are flooding into Jerusalem for Passover, they are able to see in their language this inscription that will ultimately be put on the cross over top of Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth, lowly town as far as most Jews were concerned in and around Jerusalem. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. There is no, no conviction in that statement. There's no condemnation. There's no crime. There's nothing in that statement that says this man is worthy of execution, much less crucifixion. And so Pilate, in doing this, finds this way one last time to sort of jab at the Jewish leaders and, and the fact that they have brought Jesus to them. Jesus had openly professed to be the king of kings. Saw that last week in the passage when he says, I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. And now what Pilate is hoping to do to the Jewish leaders is to say, look, there he is. This guy from Nazareth who has been beaten, who is covered in blood, who had the crown of thorns impaled on him, who is now nailed to a cross and is hanging there. There is your king. Look at him. See, this is just his way of both mocking Jesus in the process, but primarily mocking the Jewish leaders. And yet what is meant as an insult is further proof of the innocence of Jesus. He had done nothing wrong. If he had done something wrong, Pilate would have justly put that on the placard. And he has nothing on him. And so once again, it is the innocence of Jesus. Hebrews 7.26 describes Jesus as a high priest, holy Innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The writer in Hebrews goes on to describe how the, the Jewish priests, day after day, would go and make sacrifices at the temple for the sins of the people and the sins of their own. Jesus made one sacrifice of himself for one time, once and for all, and for that he has paid the price for sinners. He has declared them redeemed. He himself is the one sacrifice who could be offered, who is perfect, and who is without blemish, completely innocent. Jesus experienced temptation, yet was without sin. It is our sin and our guilt that he is bearing on that cross. It is our thoughts and words and deeds and inaction that Jesus is bearing on the cross. As, as Bob read earlier from Isaiah 53, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is our sin that Jesus is bearing and our guilt that's placed on his innocence. And so Jesus suffers as an innocent man. And secondly, I think what we see here in the, in the putting Jesus on the cross with this placard is also that the suffering of Jesus demands a response. John is the only gospel writer who notes this, this trilingual statement, the fact that it is in Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. And I think John does that purposely. He wants his reader to know that this proclamation was for all to read, for all to observe and to think about and to respond to in some way. Even though Pilate did not intend this, the consequence of it is he is declaring truth. 
Jesus Christ is a king of kings. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You know, Pilate rejected that. Pilate did not ultimately believe that Jesus was a king of kings, but he makes this statement that that very much reflects the fact that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, whether you want to acknowledge him as king or not, he truly is. Pilate ultimately is speaking God's truth, and everyone who sees that on that day, whether in person on Golgotha or reading it as we do in John's Gospel, ultimately must decide what to do with the rule and kingship of Jesus Christ. Everyone must respond to that in some way or another, because indeed that's what Jesus Christ claimed. Here in John chapter 19, we see some some clear and and contrasting examples of responses to Jesus. We see the Jewish leaders who, on the one hand, are, are fraught with anger at this placard because they want it to say, he claimed that. Don't, don't, don't make that as if it's actually even implied to be true. He, he said that. They hated Jesus, and they despised what this said. The Roman soldiers, utter disdain for Jesus. They are simply carrying out their mission of execution. And so there they are beneath the cross, and they are dividing up the, the, the few possessions that we know Jesus to have, his clothing, his garments. And they are casting lots for those gambling over his clothes. To the executioners went the spoil, and they have zero regard for Jesus' life, zero mercy for an innocent man. There is nothing but disdain. They are treating the Lamb of God like he is some despised criminal, not even worthy of a shred of dignity in that moment. On the other hand, there are those who are standing there who we assume are overwhelmed with grief. His mother, Mary, the mother of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. John, who describes himself again here as the disciple whom he loved. John has used that title before. We talked about it the first week when we were studying the Gospel of John. That's such a significant title for John, and you know that when you go ahead and you read 1 John, his letter later, that John is captivated by the fact that Jesus loves sinners. The fact that he is loved by Jesus is the most magnificent thing in the world to John. How could Jesus love me like this? And so even when he identifies himself, it is merely as the disciple whom he loved. It was not John's way of saying, hey, I'm really special. I'm the one he loved, as we might take that. It was his way of saying, I'm a follower of his, and he loves me, and I'm amazed by that. I want to be known as somebody that's loved by Jesus. So we've got them at the cross, mourning, standing in agony, watching Jesus suffer. We've got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who we read about, who had been sort of secret disciples, who had kind of kept their following of Jesus sort of undercover because they didn't want to upset the other Jewish leaders. And here they are, after the death of Jesus, stepping forward and taking possession of the body to prepare it for burial. There is no neutral ground in responding to Jesus Christ. You may... You may choose to look at this as an historic story and and think that you can be indifferent about it or ignore it in some way, but to do so is to deny the very statements of Jesus himself about who he was and what he came to do, that he came to be the light of the world, that he came to rescue sinners, that he came to call people to believe on himself and be saved. Jesus Jesus was not vague. He was not indifferent. He boldly stood by his own public teaching 
even when it meant that he would be crucified, even under that very threat being imminent, Jesus still spoke the truth. Are you son of God? So you say. Are you king? So you say. Jesus continues to stand by what is true. Even as he stood before the governor who threatens him with death penalty, Jesus still asserts in that moment, Pilate, you would, you would be nothing unless it were delegated to you by my father. Unless God delegates authority to you, you have nothing. I have authority, and it's not even of this world. It's a supernatural authority that, that superintends even over yours. Jesus did not shy away from the claim of being the Messiah and Savior who came from heaven. And Peter reflects this in his first sermon after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when he's preaching in Acts chapter 2. Peter gives this indictment to the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem when he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter was not softening the message at all. He is still saying, you must respond to this one. He is Lord. He is Christ. You have crucified him. You must respond to him because Peter will go on in this passage and say that he has now been raised from the dead and is exalted to heaven where he is at the right hand of God. Peter is saying the same thing that Jesus Christ made clear. He was not just some nice guy from Nazareth who preached nice messages about love that he was the Savior sent from God who was crucified for, saviors, uh, for sinners and raised from the dead for our life and for our eternal hope, and you must respond to him. When Peter preached that and said, you've crucified the Lord and Christ, the response the people give is it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And there it is. Now that, now that we've seen what Jesus claims, we, we need to know what to do, how we respond to him. You can choose to ignore Jesus. You can choose to, to ignore the cross. That doesn't diminish the truth of what happened on it in any way. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world who came to save sinners from their sin and give them eternal life. And so his suffering on the cross, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, is either your hope in which your life and eternity rests. Either your, your life rests on what Jesus did on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, or that will be your judgment. Either it is your hope, or it is your eternal judgment. But you must respond to Jesus Christ and to what you see about the gospel. Paul is, excuse me, John is making this clear even down through this passage when he says it in verse 35, when he says at one point, he who saw it, talking about Jesus' death, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. He's talking about himself. I've seen it, and it's true that you also may believe. I'm not telling you this, he says, for history's sake. I'm telling you this because you need to respond to it. You need to believe in him. Jesus suffered as an innocent man. His suffering demands a response. Third, Jesus suffered as a servant. If you've followed, read, seen the movies, whatever about the Easter story, you've, you've thought about crucifixion in some way. There's been lots written, lots said about the, the gruesome physical torment of death on a cross. It was designed to prolong death. It was designed for the utmost of public humiliation. 
to, to hang the condemned criminal alive on a cross, to nail him there and to leave him there exposed in suffering. We know that even before that happened, Jesus was horribly tortured. He had been whipped and beaten before that. He is already in agony from that. He carries his own crossbeam as far as he can as a condemned criminal through the streets of Jerusalem until the point that someone else is recruited to take over for him as they carry the crossbeam up the hill. In crucifixion, there is the searing pain of nails being driven through flesh and nerves and then the, the weight of the body being hung on that cross at those points where that, the nails have pierced the body. The, the attempt to survive is, is still in that instinct to try to breathe and to try to somehow get through this. And you are, you are suffering under the Middle Eastern sun in this. D.A. Carson writes, to breathe it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasms racked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. Romans at some points put a small peg on the back of the cross to sort of be like a little stool. It wasn't meant for any form of comfort for the victim, it was meant to, to help them carry on even longer so that they could sort of support themselves on that. But the whole thing, as Carson's describing, is the body just wants to slump down to escape the pain of the nails. And every time it does, you, you lose the ability to breathe. And so you have to try to pull yourself back up where the pain is so excruciating at this point. Jesus Christ is experiencing that. The Romans had other forms of the death penalty that were intended to be swift. Crucifixion was purposely designed to be a long, brutal, public execution, to put that criminal on display for as long as possible in the most agony as possible so that death would finally feel like escape, would finally feel like some level of relief. In addition to all the, the physical agony and the humiliation of being on the cross, the thing that stands out over all of this that makes this different from any other crucifixion is Jesus Christ is also receiving the wrath of the Father as the price for our sins. And so John doesn't record it, Matthew does, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is, it is in that moment of darkness that our sins are being heaped on Jesus Christ and the punishment that you and I deserve is being meted out on him. He who is innocent, who is sinless, is now bearing our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body. By his wounds you have been healed, as he refers back to Isaiah. In the midst of all of that, the physical, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual dimension of being forsaken for the first time in all of eternity from the Father and bearing the wrath of sin. In the midst of all of that, verse 26 tells us that Jesus looked and saw his mother and provides for her care. He does what, what the oldest son is responsible to do in that moment, and he looks down upon Mary and he appoints John to take her in and to protect her and to make sure that she is not in need. That is just a remarkable display of selfless compassion in an hour when, I think if any of us thought about this for any length of time, that, that would not be what would come to my mind in that moment. In the midst of the agony and the suffering, it would be hard to think about anything other than that. And Jesus 
even on the cross as a servant, even in the, the devastation that he's experiencing, he's making provision for Mary. And he commissions John to provide care for her. And John brings her into his home from that day forth. In that moment, our Savior is a servant, as he always is. He is, in that moment, obedient to the fourth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. And even then, he is honoring his mother by caring for her and putting her in the care of his beloved disciple, not in the care of his stepbrothers, who at that point, as we've seen elsewhere in the Gospels, are still unbelieving. They, they will come to faith. At least we will see James later on. They will come to faith. But at this moment, his concern is to place her with John, with the disciple that he so dearly loves. Jesus Christ suffered as an innocent man. His suffering demands a response. He suffered as a servant. And fourth, John wants us really to see that Jesus' suffering fulfilled biblical prophecy. John makes this point repeatedly throughout this passage. Four times in particular he says so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, and then he implies it elsewhere as well. But four times to fulfill the scriptures, this happened. Starts in verse 24 when they're dividing up the garments. And verse 24 says this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Down in verse 28, the, the giving of this sour wine to respond to his thirst, he says there, is to fulfill the scriptures. Then we get down to verses 36 and 37. The fact that none of his bones were broken, even though the others were, is to fulfill the scriptures. Verse 37, that he is pierced is to fulfill the scripture. We could even go on to the portion about the tomb that he is laid in, and it echoes back to Isaiah 53 and his burial. But throughout this passage... John is concerned to point back and to say, this that looks like a little detail, you think I'm just telling you a little bit to put a little information about the story? No, I'm telling you this because this is exactly what was prophesied in the Old Testament. These are details that the prophets of old wrote, not fully grasping as they wrote them exactly what they would look like 700 or more years later. They, they had a specific meaning when they wrote them, but he's saying God gave those prophecies so that when they were fulfilled in the crucifixion, you would see there was nothing random about the crucifixion. There, this was not God being defeated in this and somehow evil takes over and God's just out of control. This is John saying, look, God controlled each element all the way through this. This is, this is his plan being carried out in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus had said early in his ministry in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John is talking to a largely Jewish audience about the Old Testament scriptures. You're, you're reading them, that's good, and you're looking, you're looking to find answers and you're looking for life in them. But if you read them and you don't see me in them, if you don't see how the prophets were pointing forward to the Lamb of God who would sacrifice himself on the cross, if you're not seeing me, you're missing it. You're looking at laws and you're trying to obey and perform and do things and you're missing life. Martin Luther wrote, He who would correctly and profitably read Scripture should see to it that he finds Christ in it. Then he finds eternal life without fail. If you approach the Bible as merely 
a religious manual of some kind, some historic document that will help you have a nicer, happier life and get along better with other people, and that's it, and you fail to see Jesus Christ as the source of life, then you've missed it. Because it is pointing forward to him. The scriptures are pointing toward Jesus, particularly to his death and his resurrection and his coming again. There is no hope apart from Christ. It's not in God's law. It's not in works. The hope is in Christ. Luther added, I I may become a learned man by reading and studying scripture, yet all this would do me no good whatsoever. For if I do not know and do not find the Christ, neither do I find salvation and life eternal. For John, these scenes on the cross, the gambling for Jesus' clothes, the the offer of the, the, the provision of the sour vinegar, the breaking of the legs of the others but not of Jesus, and the piercing of his side... All are important in the moment, both to describe what's happening. The the piercing in the side has particular relevance when it happens at that moment and the water and blood flow out. It is a clear statement that he has died. That, That regardless of those who at different points in history have tried to come up with theories about Jesus and say, ah, maybe he didn't fully die. They put him in the tomb, the cool of the tomb. He sort of swooned and then he came back and regained consciousness. No, John is making it clear when they pierced his side, he was dead. That's the point there. But John is also very much in keeping with his entire theme, is trying to say to his readers, this is all the plan of God. It is all perfect according to God's own prophecies. It is the fulfillment of his truth. The events of the cross were not left to to chance in any way. God's eternal plan to save sinners through the cross was both planned by God and now being carried out in the suffering of Jesus Christ is precisely according to God's perfect will, down to the individual fulfilled prophecies. They, They should encourage us. They should add to our appreciation and gratitude for the trustworthiness of Scripture, that that we find the truth of God clearly in here, and God keeps his word. Let me just read 28 to 30 one more time, and, and, and just we'll go back to this for the final point. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus Christ suffered as an innocent man. His suffering demands a response. He suffered as a servant. And his suffering fulfilled biblical prophecy. Fifth and and certainly most important of all of these is the suffering of Jesus accomplished our redemption. The suffering of Jesus accomplishes our redemption. Here is the the clearest picture of the meaning of Christ's suffering. It's not some moral example. It was not some plan that went awry. In fact, it says that in verse 28, Jesus says, Jesus knew that it was finished. We see the word finished there. It's it's Jesus' own acknowledgement that it has been accomplished. And then he cries out after the vinegar, it is finished. That Greek word for finished is not simply the end or done. It is the idea of completion in the sense of a goal has been achieved. Whatever was laid out and set out before is now brought to fulfillment or completion. 
Jesus had always seen his suffering as a God-designed, purposeful suffering. And so that's why throughout his ministry he's saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, and now it has. Because this has all been by God's design. And so finished does not simply mean that he got to the end of the suffering and it was finally over. It is Jesus declaring that the plan of God for redemption is complete. The work has been done. James Boyce writes, Christ's words were not the final gasping sob of a defeated man or even the firm, deliberate declaration of one who was resigned to his fate. They were a triumphant declaration that the turning point in history had been reached and that the work that Jesus had been sent into the world to do had been done. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. How would they have life? They must have it through a Savior, a perfect Lamb of God, who gives himself to the cross to suffer there and to die and then to rise again. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners, to give himself in our place. Redemption, when we talk about redemption, that theological term, if you think of it in simplest terms, it's purchasing something. It is purchasing it from one to make it the possession of the other. The the Greek language was used in terms of slavery and redeeming a slave, somebody who has been purchased out of slavery and now purchased into freedom from one thing into another. And so when we talk about redemption, we are talking about God purchasing sinners who are enslaved to sin and to death and who are in darkness and purchasing them to life in his presence. And the price that is paid for that purchase is Jesus' own blood and the giving of his own life. The New Testament language for redemption, the Greek language behind it, uses words that have a strong commercial theme to them. They're used in the marketplace often to speak of the buying of, of items, about buying something out of one thing for another. And so when he says, it is Finished, to telestai, which is from tello, that that idea of redemption, completing, finishing. He is making it clear, it is done. The work, the, the debt is now paid. The purchase is now complete. The price is sufficient for sin, and redemption has been bought for you and I. We have a Savior who gave himself to the accomplishment of our redemption. And this is, this is simply John's gospel now. This is where John has been saying to us, keep, keep with me, keep following me, listen to this. I want you to see what he did. Because he said it at the very beginning in chapter 1 when he wrote, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of the will of man, but children born of God. How are we born of God? It is by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It is by this moment in history. When the Savior gives himself to the cross. And so the suffering of Jesus Christ for all of its agony and horror is all accomplishing God's purpose. And it is in believing this gospel of Jesus Christ that he came to die and that he rose again from the dead demonstrating that the redemption was indeed complete in terms of price. The resurrection is the proof that the price that was paid was sufficient. It is in that that we have the gospel and we have life and hope for all of eternity. You must believe that. If you do believe that, then then my encouragement to you is this should be a lesson 
of how the power of God truly does work all things together for good. This is the, this is the magnificent display of Romans 8.28 in action. This is God demonstrating that in the moment that looked the bleakest, darkest, and most filled with horror, in that moment of agony, God is accomplishing his good work. He is carrying out his purposes to the fame of his glory. Romans 8.32 goes on and says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If we look to the suffering of Jesus Christ, and we see God's work in that, and his accomplishment of redemption, that, that should help us as we walk through suffering and trials and hardships and times when it just we feel overwhelmed because in Christ's suffering there is this assurance that God does not ordain meaningless, pointless suffering for his children. That God is at work in these things, in and through our suffering, to bring glory to himself and for our good. When we suffer as believers in Jesus Christ, we must keep looking to the cross. We've got to look back at our Savior and realize what God was accomplishing in that because from a worldly perspective in that moment, it was utter despair. I mean, we're going to look at it next week, and you've read it before, that when that first day of the week came, the disciples didn't get up that morning and go, today's the day. He rises from the dead. Instead, they're shocked as if he hadn't taught them already these things. So on that night, when they are taking the body of Jesus down, there is a sense of utter despair. How could this have happened? There's nothing good in this. And yet out of that, God is unfolding this perfect plan to redeem a people for himself. We need to look to the cross, friends, when we are in our time of suffering. Our suffering doesn't accomplish redemption. Jesus did that once and for all. But our God is working through our circumstances for his glory and for our good. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, that is our hope in the darkest of times, that we have a Savior who's already suffered in our place, and so we have an eternal hope in him. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? That's the most important question I'll ask you this morning. Have you set your hope? on the innocent one who took sin on himself and suffered on the cross. As you see the king of kings on the cross, what are you going to do with him? Will you believe in him? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Do you, do you confess that you are a sinner, that you and I together can do nothing about our own sin? We can't come to God someday with a scorecard and say, look, I really did do a lot of good things, and I, I chose a lot of things that weren't so good, but I didn't do the worst things. And so there, somehow it, it has to work out. You and I can't do that. We can't bring that to God. Because it, it, the score would never work, because we're not perfect. Only one was, only one is, and that is the sinless Savior. And he took on himself our sins, paid that debt in full, rose again to show that the debt was indeed canceled now, and we have life in Christ. Will you trust in him today? Let's pray. Father, we see in Scripture that early in that first century, the preaching of the cross to some was almost scandalous because they, they saw the cross for what it was in that era, a device of torture and agony and suffering. And here were a people claiming that their 
king, their lord, their messiah, had been put to death on that cross. Lord, we, we can only just begin to fathom how startling that must have been to begin to fathom. But yet we see that it's true. That to, to become a curse in order to provide rescue from the curse was your plan from the beginning. And so your son endured the shame, endured the agony, in order to complete and carry out your will that we today would be able to rest our hope in for all of eternity. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not yet trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, we pray that today would be the day that they would come to that place of both seeing their own sinfulness, their own rebellion against you, and their desperate need for a sinless sacrifice to be made in their place. Would you today call them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? And Father, for we who are trusting in Christ, for the experiences of suffering and the trials, the dark moments, valleys that we walk through, help us again by your Spirit to fix our eyes on the cross, to see again in that suffering the magnificent work of a loving God. Lord, we thank you that you are at work in and through our suffering. We pray that we would give you glory for it. Help us to keep our focus on where it should be. In the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.